The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 52 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. It's true that even though there are hundreds of thousands of people diagnosed with cancer each year, as individuals, we often feel alone in aspects of our cancer journey. Sometimes, just speaking how we feel out loud can make a big difference to set those feelings aside. It's also true that knowing someone who's been there and is walking your path can make a huge difference to quiet the fears of the unknown. If you've been following me or listening to the show for a while, you also know that there may not be an answer to the question of why this cancer thing is happening in the first place. My guest this week had no history of breast cancer in her family. She's the mom of five who breastfed her babies, both potential reducers of breast cancer risk. She was a marathon runner and a vegetarian. Exercise and nutrition, both big checks in the prevention column. She also had her first breast cancer diagnosis at the age of 37. Jody Lynn is a two-time breast cancer survivor thriver who became a certified health and wellness coach and holistic cancer coach following her diagnosis. I'm excited for you to hear her story today. Welcome, Jody. I'm so happy to have you here today. We have just been chatting for a little bit, and I think this is going to be such a great conversation. So many synchronicities and, and interesting topics to cover. So I'm going to turn it over to you and have you just jump in and share your story, kind of start to present. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today. And I'm excited to share my journey. I hope that some others can take some lessons from it and, you know, help maybe prevent somebody from having a diagnosis or a more intense diagnosis than I had. So here's my story. I am a mom of five children and I was diagnosed for the first time at the age of 37 when my youngest, my son, was born, he was five months old. Um, during my pregnancy, we pretty much had an idea that there was something going on because prior to the pregnancy, I had pain in my chest, which they always tell you that you don't get pain with cancer. So I never thought much about it, but I did want to know the source of that pain. So I had a mammogram done for the first time at like 37 and everything showed up that there were some microcalcifications. They said, don't worry, they're benign usually 80% of the time. So I didn't give it much more thought except that the pain was still there. Um, shortly after I ended up getting pregnant with my son and during the pregnancy, I ended up finding out that there was um, bloody colostrum. So bloody colostrum basically meant that I was having some blood coming out of my breast. And that's not typical. So I did go to the doctor and he said, sometimes that happens. He was sure that I had looked it up. But when she, he saw that combined with my microcalcifications, that's when he decided that we really needed to do a follow-up, but not during my pregnancy. So everybody decided to wait throughout the pregnancy before doing a follow-up mammogram and really researching what this bloody colostrum was. So we did that. And still, I had not heard the words cancer ever. And I had 
no kind of concept to even think about that because I do not have breast cancer in my family. I never thought I would be somebody to hear those words. Sure enough, when my son was five months old, I did go back for the follow-up and they saw a major change in the microcalcifications. They had grown significantly. And oddly enough, on February 4th, which is now known as World Cancer Day, I heard those words for the first time. I was told, we need you to stay to do more scanning because we see something. And I was trying to leave there. I had a newborn that needed to go have a nap. I had a three-year-old who was in preschool who needed to be picked up, not to mention my other children. And they said to us, no, 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 we need you to stay. You need to understand, we think you have cancer. And my whole world just stopped right then and there. I went into a complete fog. Um, So sure enough, I ended up with what's known as DCIS. Now they call it stage zero. However, it was widespread front to back of my breast. So there was no denying that I needed to do something about this. Initially, they just did a lumpectomy, trying to be as conservative as possible with a nursing mom. But then um, they realized margins weren't clear. And at that point, I had educated myself more about what all this meant. And I had made the decision to go ahead and do a bilateral mastectomy. And um, that was supposed to be the end of it. The doctor, the oncologist that I saw, who was not someone that I would ever recommend to anybody, said to me, if you go unilateral, then we'll put you on tamoxifen. If you go bilateral, you're done with me. You don't need to see me anymore. So I said, okay, like those options, didn't know any better. I did go bilateral and I um, ended up still having unclear margins. So surprising to everybody, I ended up having to have seven weeks of radiation um, to help deal with those margins. So that was it. I thought I was done. Like I just thought I had done everything I possibly can. I removed all the risk. It was never going to come back. This was great. I did start to do the research though. Why? Why was someone like me who was a mom of five and all the research shows the more children you have, the lower the likelihood is of getting it. No history of it in the family. I was a runner. Exercise is supposed to help reduce your risks. I nursed all my children. Nursing is supposed to help reduce the risks. And I was a vegetarian. And I thought that was also supposed to reduce the risk until I really stopped to look at what it was I was eating as a vegetarian. And so um, I really realized I was more of a Pastatarian. I ate a lot of pasta, white flour, white sugar. I didn't eat enough vegetables to counter that. And so I really had to take a second look at my diet. In that time, I started learning about the job of a health coach and I attended the Institute of Integrative Nutrition, which was so eye opening to me, really helping me to see all the different ways food impacts the body, exercise impacts the body, and stress impacts the body. And so I just ate up all that information and I started to make serious changes in my life so that I wouldn't have a recurrence. And I was good to go. I thought I was set. I was never going to hear those words again until the year 2017, my sister was diagnosed with cancer. She had um, a rare kind of cancer nothing attributed to my cancer. It was called, um, she was staged for a rhabdomyosarcoma. That's the word. So that came out of nowhere. And I spent the next year going back and forth between here and Boston, where she lived, trying to help her as much as I could, and still trying to take care of my family at the same time, my job at the same time. So there was a lot going on. Six months into her diagnosis, my father passed away unexpectedly. Um, then I put together a bat mitzvah for my third daughter, who was um, 13. It was her bat mitzvah. 
And my sister actually came and she looked great and she looked fantastic. And we thought the meds were all working. After that time, she started to go downhill. And she ended up passing away in June of 2018. So um, there is a lot of stress at that time. And even though my nutrition was dialed in, um, my exercise is another factor that I realized was probably impacting me because I was training for marathons on either end of her diagnosis and her passing away. I'm not meant to be a marathon runner. And I was causing a lot of inflammation in my body, which I was aware of. I could see the swelling and the, I can, it was getting tendonitis left, right, and center. But I still pushed through because it was also my way of managing my stress. So while I was trying to manage my mental stress, I was dealing with a lot of physical stress on the body. And you know, she passed away in June of 2018. In September of 2018, I started really noticing these um, spasms that I now know are called intercostal neuralgia spasms that I didn't know where they were coming from at the time. They were very painful spasms in my breast area. Um, I did have reconstruction after the first time. And I started going to the doctor to try to get answers to these because they were really painful. They stopped me in my tracks. If I was driving, it actually was dangerous because the pain would hit so hard that I have to slam on my brakes. So it wasn't safe for me to go without getting something to control these or understanding what they even were. And unfortunately, the plastic surgeon had no idea what I was talking about. The oncologist had no idea what I was talking about. Nobody really understood the source of this pain. I had a new GP at that point and she was fantastic. And she said, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And in so doing, we ended up finding out that there was another tumor. This time I had DCIS, still stage one. So it was still early, but there were um, tumors that were encapsulated in the scar tissue. So here we go again. I go back to the doctors. Now it's like, that's it. We got to remove everything. You have to go flat. We have no choice. And we want you to do chemo. I am estrogen, progesterone positive, like 99% on both of those. And it was HER2 positive. So the studies at the time were starting to show that it's more beneficial actually to do the chemo first and then do the surgery after so that you can clean up anything that might've been missed. And that's what we did. I, I made a choice to support myself still nutritionally throughout the process because I knew food was still a very important tool to help with the chemo, let the chemo do its thing and then get it out of my body. Um, I continued to exercise when I could because I knew I needed to keep my strength up and my immune system strong. But I will tell you that I was on TCHP for the first three cycles, which is Taxotere, Herceptin, Carboplatin, and Progetta. I had um, the same. Did, did you? That just, I don't know how you responded to it, but that did a number on my GI system. So they always say that whatever your poison is, that's how you're going to see the chemo impacting you. My GI system has always been my poison. That's how everything, you know, I can get the reactions from. And I was very sick. I didn't vomit, thank goodness. But, you know, the GI impacted me to the point that there would be like a week where I could not leave my bathroom. And so after three cycles, they did switch me. Finally, my liver numbers were coming up. My, um, all my like potassium, sodium and everything were all over the place. So they had to switch me. I switched to, um, Taxol and Herceptin and that was so much better for me. So I made it through the last three cycles. I continued Herceptin till surgery. Surgery ended up, um, showing I still had some microtumors. So we had to continue the Herceptin and we put back the Progetta. At the time, they were talking about adding another medication, which the name is not coming to me right now, but my doctor, my liver would be able to handle it. So we opted not to do that. 
And I continued the Herceptin Progetta through February of last year. I was supposed to go till March, but in comes a pandemic and they decided that it was riskier for me to come in and get the last two treatments and that they thought I would be fine without the last two. So that's where I am. Yeah, the extended Progetta is actually a different, that's been changed since I received it. When I had my diagnosis, which was also HER2 positive in 2016, Progetta had just like I had my surgery in June. I saw my oncologist on the 12th of July and sometime between June 30th and July 1st, Progetta was approved. Yep. So I got Progetta with my first six cycles and then that was discontinued and I continued with the Herceptin for a year. Right. So they stopped my Progetta also until, I mean, when they switched me off the TCHP, they stopped my Progetta, but because they still found the tumors, they put me back on the Progetta. Then um, generic brand came out called Kangenti to replace the Herceptin. And they're like, oh, it's exactly the same. They didn't give me a choice. They just let me know that, by the way, we're switching you over. And I was terrified to be switched over, given how sensitive I already had proven to be. Within two sessions of the Kangenti, we were all like, nope, this is not working for you. And we had to get special exceptions to get the Herceptin put back in because that stuff was nasty for me. I was nauseous, dizzy, losing weight, getting tingly. It was awful. So just really understanding your body and then, you know, standing up for yourself, being an advocate for your own health and well-being is really important because had I not said anything, I would have been miserable for the next six months. But um, when they realized I was having an issue and I voiced it, they went back to what was working for me. Well, and often the difference between the generic and the brand is the fillers. Mm -hmm. And I you know, washed out of tamoxifen because tamoxifen has gluten in it. And I'm Ooh, celiac. That's good and to know. I had been very upfront with the fact that I was celiac and just thought that it was an under, like, I thought we had an understanding <laughs> that I was celiac and that meant that I couldn't have things with gluten. And so I do, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I do think a lot of the challenges that I had was gluten and different preservative type ingredients in the medications. Did you have with Herceptin, did you have the runny nose? Yeah. So let me take a step back for a second though. When you said celiac, first of all, I am as well. And that kind of came out after my first round of breast cancer. When I started the Taxotere, I started doing the research, calling the companies because I felt like I was being glutened over and over again. Now there was no gluten in any of the ones that I was taking, thank goodness. Um, but my doctor keeps asking me if I want to try tamoxifen and I had no idea that there was gluten in there. So now I have even more reason to tell her no. So my oncologist did not know either. And one of the interesting things that I learned when I, I was running, I trained for dopey after my chemo ended I was still on Herceptin, but I trained for Dopey. And so you're smiling. So I have a sense that you know what Dopey is being a marathon runner. So Dopey yep. is is a Disney, a series of Disney races on marathon weekend every January. And it's a 5K on Thursday, a 10K on Friday, a half marathon on Saturday, and a marathon on Sunday. So full disclosure, I walked way more than I ran. 
during the 10K, I saw someone limping and she had a dopey bib on. And I said, just walk. She was like, but I want to keep running. And I was like, but do you want to finish on Sunday? Like, it's Friday. Long way to go. Like, just walk. There's no, like, you're going to finish. You're going to have the medals. Like, that's no one's going to ask you how fast you were. (laughs) No one's going to ask you if you won. There's 25,000 people here. Exactly. And the, the dopey is more about just the fun of doing it in the spirit of the competition. It's not yes. one of those intense races. Yeah. It's really just about doing, going out there and like putting in the work, doing the preparation and being able to kind of get to the other side of that. But in doing that, I think I was processing the medication through my body mm-hmm. at a faster rate. And my mom, my parents came down to Florida with us for the week. And she got a really bad cold while we were there. And the tamoxifen was affecting my immune system. My hair wasn't growing back. I, like, these things were all happening, but I didn't know why. And when I came home, I had the cold that she had. And it was one of these colds that lingered. So I had taken a break from training. And it was at that point that it kind of overwhelmed my system. And after several months of being in this kind of downward spiral, I woke up one morning, looked at my husband and said, it's gluten. And he was like, what's gluten? (laughs) And I was like, the tamoxifen, I bet there's gluten in the tamoxifen. But my symptoms were different from yours. Like you mentioned the GI tract, like I had a lot of skin things going on. But it had been like eight years since I had eaten gluten on any kind of regular, regular basis. So he said, oh my gosh, you're right. Like the headaches, the teeth, my teeth where I had had a root canal, like I was having issues with my teeth, which I hadn't had since I'd stopped eating gluten. And when I brought it to the attention of my oncologist, they, it took them 18 weeks to confirm that it actually did have gluten in it. 18 weeks. 18 weeks. And I basically gave them 24 hours. I said, if you can tell me tomorrow there's no gluten in this, then we can have a conversation. Otherwise, just put it in my notes that I'm not taking it anymore. And we can discuss it. Like, if he needs to talk to me, he knows where to find me. And they called me back. They said, we haven't gotten an answer yet. I said, great, I'm done. You can just mark it down. And... I said, you know, the first, the first thing on the, the uh, contraindications, Mm -hmm. that's the word I was looking for. The contraindications says, do not take if allergic. Oh my gosh. And I just said that then when they confirmed it, I said, great, I'm allergic. Says right here on the bottle, do not take if you're allergic. Yeah. Yeah. And it took about a year for them to be fully on board that it was better for me not to be taking it than to be taking it. Wow. Because it took about a year for my blood work and everything to fully come back. And for my hair to, like, actually be, like, my hair. Yeah. Yeah. I was fortunate. Um, The first oncologist I had, like I said, she was awful. I would never recommend her to anybody. Um, but she is in the Kaiser system, which is where I am. 
And so when I got diagnosed again, and I had asked before my second diagnosis, I was about five years out and I started to worry, like, you know, I did all those Avon walks for breast cancer. I had done five of them to, you know, kind of mark when I was in my remission. But I also started to worry because you start hearing these stories. My mom is two years survivor, a two-time survivor. My aunt is a three-time survivor. Why are they getting it so many times? And that's when it starts to sit in the back of my head. Like, what if I'm one of those people that gets it back? Um, so I asked the my GP to contact the oncologist and say, hey, I haven't had anyone follow me for about two years. Shouldn't someone be following me? And she was like, no, you're four years out. You're fine. That was her answer. She had no interest in seeing me. So anyhow, when I got diagnosed again, um, they wanted to put me with her. And I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because she should have even known from how my margins were not clear margins and how to have the radiation. She should have been following me. Somebody should have been following me. And she just fell. Uh, and she failed that important step in my progress. So um, then they put me with somebody else. And I felt like he was not somebody who was willing to listen to anything I had to say. And given my experience and my knowledge at that point, I wanted to have a little bit more respect in the things I was asking. And he just didn't have it. So I said, I'm not working with him. So they found me another one. And she was great. And she is so responsive to me. Um, You know, when I asked about the gluten, that was something she didn't have an answer for, but we worked together to figure it out. Now I've had to say to her that the anastrozole was not working for me because of all the ailments that came up as soon as I started it, including plantar fasciitis and really bad swelling in my hands and pain. Um, and she listened to me. Um, when we switched the examination, she said, let's try this. That lasted a week and it was so much worse. She said to me, okay, you know, you're super sensitive and we knew this going in. You know, do you want to consider something else? Do you want to try um, doing tamoxifen, which... I didn't know about the gluten. She didn't know about the gluten. Obviously, I would have had to find that out really quickly. At least when I was looking into it a year, two years ago, there was one option, one AI option that did not have gluten. The anastrozole has gluten. It does. Yes. So that could have been a contributing factor to the issues that you were having because they were Mm -hmm. very similar to the issues I had on tamoxifen. So... This is actually a really important topic that I would love to circle back on, but we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation. So stay with us. I hope you're enjoying Unspoken Cancer Truths. I help people to get moving again. And sometimes you just need to switch up the approach or find a new challenge, especially when thinking about starting back after treatment or an illness. One of my goals is to help you flip the idea of exercise as something that's hard, awful, or daunting, and make it something fun, maybe even a little social. Safely, of course. The important thing is that you want to get started, and you're happy to show up for yourself, and then you want to stay in the game because it feels good to move, and you had fun doing it. Ready to reimagine exercise? You can email me at jennifer at fitnessdesignsolutions.com or schedule a coffee chat with me through the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with Jodi and we have been talking about her experience with breast cancer, not once, but twice. And I really wanted to circle back on something that you said during our our first segment about your first oncologist not following you and feeling like you were four years out and that was that was good. 
it was really interesting because one of the reasons that I went with the oncologist that I went with was that he was the oncologist of a client of mine who at the time was 10 years out. And he had just cut her loose to come once a year. Wow. And that was like a big celebration that she wasn't seeing him every like nine months. Um, That she could finally see him once a year. But I knew that his intention really was that he was going to follow her forever. Like for as long as he is practicing, he is keeping track. And actually, she had a rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis and the medication that she's on has a very low probability of causing a lymphoma. So he started track. He's up to her appointments now. I think she sees him every six months. But that was really important to me. Like I was, I embraced someone following me forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I hope that it never comes to pass that I need treatment an additional time in the future, the fact that someone is following me and looking at things. And that gave me an extra sense of comfort. Right. I agree. So, yeah, I mean, my first time, you know, obviously, as I mentioned, I was oblivious to everything. I didn't have enough information. And when she said that, and I heard no tamoxifen, I was like, woohoo. Okay. I'm done. I never have to worry about this again. Um, but in hindsight now, I realize that had they been following me, maybe this would have been caught sooner. I've been lucky. I am one of those people who's very in tune with their bodies. So when something goes awry, I know it instinctively, I know it and I follow through on it and I make sure that somebody else is looking to see why I'm feeling this way. I like to get to the root cause of a lot of my pains or issues. And I was lucky enough to have a doctor who was willing to listen to me and help me find those answers. But that's not always the case as it wasn't my first time. Um, And for some people, you know, you just don't know what's happening in your body. You're not really aware. There's so many assaults going on in the body that it just becomes like this big haze of, okay, this is the way I am now. This is the way I'm living. I'm getting older. That's it. Or in my case, I had five babies. I guess this is just how my body's reacting. But if you're not, you know, if you don't really know what's going on and you're not in tune and don't want to do the research, it's better to have somebody there who is being your eyes and ears. And that's their job really to offer that continuity of care. But we don't see that as much these days. Yeah. Um, so that first doctor definitely had no interest. And then my second doctor, you know, she is following me up. Like we, I was going every three months. Now I'm going every six months. Um, but she, you know, felt something that she wants to keep an eye on. So she's bringing me back in three months. And I don't know if it's because this was my second time. Um, so that's why she's being more careful or if it's just her nature as opposed to the original doctor. But for whatever it is, if you can be followed up by somebody and just have them be that extra set of eyes and ears, that's super important. Like even with my GP, I had an option for my physical this year to just go uh, and do it virtually, right? Because of everything that we're going through, they don't want to bring me in as an, a considered immunized, immunized compromise. <laughs> Say that a few times. Um <laughs> Anyhow, so they didn't necessarily want to bring me in and put me at risk. It wasn't necessary. And I said, actually, no, I need another set of eyes on my chest because with all the surgery I've had, with all the scar tissue I have, I don't know what's going on in there. So I would like to have two sets of eyes keeping it, you know, check on what's going on. If there's any changes 
because God forbid this third time comes up, I want to get it caught early. And um, I can go back and tell you how I even caught the second time if you want to know a little bit more about that. Sure. Okay. So um, going back to when I was having these breast spasms, the, which are now intercostal neuralgia spasms, we didn't have any answers for it. And when I went to my GP that I said that I really like, and she listens to me, she started checking the area and she could see what I was feeling. I felt a little knot in there. And of course, didn't know if it was scar tissue or not, because I did have the breast reconstruction with implants. We both were on the same page that there was definitely something there. And so she sent me initially to do an ultrasound. It was supposed to be a breast guided ultrasound because I had the implants. And then they turned around and said they actually couldn't do that. And they chose to send me for an MRI instead right? Let's go for the MRI. Not that I love all this testing, but I really want to know what was going on. And the plastic surgeon that I went back to, he didn't know what these spasms were either, but he kept saying they have nothing to do with the implants. And he was right, but we didn't know that at the time. So I went for the MRI and it took me like an extra month to get this MRI because I had to have my cycle. It was very important to have my period before they did it. Um, and then I signed off on all the paperwork for the contrast to do both with and without contrast. I showed up that day already for it. They did it without contrast and they said, you're good to go. I had to argue and say, what happened to the part with contrast? That was why I waited the extra month. They said, oh, I'm sorry. We took you off the schedule. The doctor canceled you this morning for the contrast part because he didn't feel like he would be a good candidate for that. So I was so frustrated and so irritated and angry. Plus I had gone half an hour out of my way and waited an extra month for that. So that is really interesting. Because I had a breast MRI in June. It was my plastic surgeon sends me every four or five years, I think. Um, She does it after three years from first surgery. And then depending on how everything comes back, um, she said I probably wouldn't need another one for another five years. And she requested it be done with contrast. And every single person at the imaging center, they freaked me out. I was really not freaked out because I was just there for routine, like, checking. And every single person was like, why are you getting, why are you getting contrast? And I said, I don't know. My doctor wrote the order. Don't ask me. Like, I'm not, this is what my doctor wants. That's all. They asked me at the desk checking in. The tech asked me as they were tapping my arm for the IV. And then the radiologist reading the report called me like less than 30 minutes after I got home and said, why were you here today? And I said, excuse me? And he said, why did you come in for this MRI? And I said, have you read it? Is there a problem? Like, at this point, I'm like, oh, my God, is something wrong? Right. I would and be. he said, well, I haven't read it yet. I just wanted to know why, why you were here and why you had contrast done. And I said, if you have a problem, you call my plastic surgeon who wrote the order. I did not write the order, and this is completely inappropriate, and I'm not telling you why I was there, because if you can't read the MRI, like, you just read the MRI and tell me what's there. Like, I'm not going to tell you what you should be looking for. 
Right, right. And I was like, please call my doctor if you have an issue or a question. Because I do not have an answer for you. And quite frankly, now I'm now I'm freaked out. Yeah. And then they never called me with the results. I had oh to wait a week to see my plastic surgeon to get the results. Yikes. So had they not questioned why I was there for the test, and had they not called me to further question why I was there for the test, my plastic surgeon walked in the room and I was like, um, was my MRI okay? And she's like, oh yeah, it was perfect. Oh my gosh. And I was like, trauma. Like she was completely like, yeah, it's fine. They called you, right? And I said, oh, they called me to question why I had been there, but he hadn't read the MRI yet and he didn't call me with the results. And she was like, and when I shared with her, she was like, completely inappropriate. Like, so inappropriate. And. And I was not having scanxiety before I went in. And then I spent a week after the fact. Yeah. Like worried. Yeah. And stress is not a friend to us at all. No, definitely and not. And this guy, on the other hand, turned around and just outright canceled the contrast request that my doctor had specifically put in and gave me no answers. So I had to go to the front desk and say, why am I not getting it? And she's like, Oh, he canceled it. I'm like, did he ask my doctor first? No, he just decided this morning to cancel it. I'm like, you just had me sign off on the contrast. She's like, yeah, I know. I didn't realize he canceled it. So then she said to me, you know what? If it comes back clear, then we'll have you come back on Monday and do it with contrast. And I was like, livid at that point, because who has that time in their day to go half an hour out of the way to play these games? So mine ended up coming back with abnormalities. So get this, talk about getting mad at a radiologist. Um, it came back with abnormalities and what they said was that my implants had ruptured. So I was like, okay, great. Like get these out of me. They were sailing. So it wasn't that horrible, but it's like, does this explain the pain? Does this explain the spasms? Like what is going on here? So I went back to my plastic surgeon and he was like, honestly, I'm shocked that they're saying that they ruptured, but it still doesn't explain your pain, but we do have to go in and swap them out. So I said to him, fine, but if you see any evidence of any kind of um, reaction to the implants, to the fluid, anything that's causing this pain, any kind of mold, any anything, I want these out. Do not put them back in. If everything looks fine, put them back in because I was getting a lot of pressure on the outside that I'm going to want to keep them in and because I'm young. Um, so he said, fine. So we did the surgery and he comes back after the surgery. He's like, guess what? They were not ruptured. They misread the MRI. So this radiologist who cancels my contrast, misreads my MRI, puts me through an unnecessary surgery. However, in the surgery, my plastic surgeon was smart enough to remove a large section of scar tissue because it didn't look quite right. And it was huge. He sent that in for the pathology. And that's when they found out that I did have a tumor. They had only gotten part of it with that removal, but that's when it came back to CCIS. So my poor plastic surgeon had to call me up on his week off. He was out of town in tears. We felt like it was the first time we ever had to tell a patient that they had breast cancer, but he felt awful. We had established a really close relationship. Had they done the contrast like I was supposed to have, they would have seen that tumor 
that would have been one less surgery for me to have to have gone through. They could have seen it with the contrast and then they could have done whatever they needed to do at that point, whether it be a biopsy or whatever. I would not have had to have a surgery requiring me to swap out my implants for no reason. So um, that being said, one of the warnings that I often give to people who are considering reconstruction and implants is um, one, there is that associated breast associated lymphoma that can happen when you do have implants. Yeah, That's one to be aware that scar tissue does happen and you should be followed because with it was encapsulated in that scar tissue is where the tumor formed. So that um, is a really important point for people to be aware of and request to be followed up. MRIs are not fantastic and they can be expensive, but I think it's a very necessary thing for us to have at least every couple of years just to make sure that there's nothing abnormal happening in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one comment that I have on on scar tissue is that I I actually opted to have some of my scar tissue cleaned up because I was having like burning like nerve pain mm-hmm. on my right side which is not my affected side I had a bilateral as well and when they cleaned up that scar tissue a lot of my pain went a lot of my chronic pain went away and I knew that it was scar related pain because I have a large scar on my knee. And when I would get that sharp shooting pain, I could check it. I could check it against another scar in my body that is an excellent predictor of the weather. (laughs) (laughs) So I could check it and say, okay, is this related or is there something else going on? Um, which has been amazingly like comforting from a you know mental health standpoint because I often think that chronic pain, which is not uncommon with a with a mastectomy or a bilateral mastectomy, we associate pain with potential for recurrence. Um, oh yeah, even if it's subconscious, it's still happening. Um, yeah. So that's definitely. Definitely something that I will say to people when they're saying, oh, I'm having this, like, I'm three years out and I have burning or I have, like, shooting pain and we're looking for reasons. Like, we want to be able to connect it to something. Um, Something that, um, just to that burning pain, uh, scar tissue is definitely one source of it. But as I mentioned, the intercostal neuralgia, um, people don't know what that is. The doctors didn't know what that was but I would just keep getting these spasms that came from my back wrapped around to the front into my chest and under my ribs. And it would stop me in my tracks and nobody had names for it. So I started doing this research and I found this one doctor that really explained it well. And when I went back to my oncologist, my um, GP, and then I went to a pain management doctor and I said, this is what I think it is. And my PT had actually confirmed it for me everyone's now like, Oh, yeah, no, I've heard of that. I'm like, well, this is called breast mastectomy intercostal neuralgia. So it's coming from either the chemo or the surgeries themselves that are interacting with those nerves and severing them and causing damage to them that sets them off to misfire. Um, Fortunately, mine have gotten under control since the spring, but I was at a point where they were happening back to back to back to back. And I was doubled over in pain and it would render me useless. Um, It was exhausting. I didn't want to take medication for it. I'm not a fan of medication, 
I was offered every type of pain medication, GABA, baclofen, whatever it was they were offering me. I was very resistant to taking it unless they were so bad. Then I gave into the baclofen because it would stop them. Um, somehow I've been lucky over the summer. They kind of went away with the warm weather, with the exercising. They have been sporadic since the cold weather kicked in. But it's a really great term for people to know so that if they start feeling these sudden sharp squeezing sensations, like sometimes under my rib, it felt like I had a baby in there that was rolling under my rib and it was about to crack. That's how bad the lower ones were. And the tight ones just felt like this squeezing, burning pain that was because of those nerves misfiring. So, um, and yeah, just keeping your mind when you start feeling those pains, that could be one of those. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's great information. If you have a link to the just the really good description, I would love for you to share that with me and I can put it in the resources under our under our chat so that people can then reference it. That would be sure. great. I um, have a Facebook group that I call Breast Mastectomy Intercostal Neuralgia. So um, there are people in there as well who compare notes and see if this is what they actually have. And the link is to that study is in there as well, but I can send all that to you. Fantastic. That's great. So that's also a way for people to connect with you. So, oh my gosh, we had so many more things on our conversation list for today, but the time just runs away so quickly. So I definitely see a follow-up interview uh, in our future, especially as you get a little further, a little further down the path from, from all of the, the things that you're, you know, kind of processing through from your second second go round. So it was so lovely to talk with you today. And thank you so much. Thank you. It was great talking with you and just having this conversation. And I hope it helps other people out there. Um, But I just love having the affirmation with you and the understanding that we're both going through this process, because we're a very small group of people and the outside world doesn't really get what we're constantly going through. They think once you've had cancer, and you were treated, you're done. And it's like, no, that's when the real road to recovery begins. So I'm glad to have this opportunity to share it with you. Unfortunately, we're both in this circumstance, but it's better together than alone. Yes, absolutely. And you highlighted so well The my Facebook group is called Surviving is Just the Beginning, because we get through the treatment And the surviving part really is just the beginning. So thank you so much. And we will definitely talk more. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thank you again to Jody. I'm always grateful for the amazing people that I connect with through the show. And I'm equally amazed by all the new things that I learned from others' experiences that I haven't yet encountered. And that reinforcement that our doctors are human. Smart, educated humans doing their very, very, very best to give us the most current and life saving treatments available. Yet they're human, and it's unfair to think that they have all the answers all the time. So, if you find yourself with one of those weird issues that's labeled as uncommon, remember to keep asking questions. It's completely okay. And if you like, you can drop it in my Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning, and see if someone else may have experienced the same thing. Or look for the coffee chat post in the show notes or in the group for us to connect. Knowing there are others with similar experiences helps us know that we're not alone, especially during these challenging COVID times. So far this year, I've shared a couple of episodes that are survivorship adjacent with my 
chat with Camille Kennard about meditation, and my conversation with Carrie Thomas about all things clutter. I'm getting some great responses to those episodes. I'm also planning an upcoming episode on trauma, how that shows up, how it impacts us, sometimes unknowingly, and some actions that we can take today. If there are other topics that you'd like to hear about, please connect with me in the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning, or through the podcast resources. Thanks for listening and have a great week.